From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to the season six premiere of Gator Tales, the only official podcast of the Gators. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While we spent the last five months on this podcast proudly telling stories from the past, we are very excited to begin writing new chapters in the book of Florida Athletics. So after a spring and summer of uncertainty, football is back, albeit not exactly the same as before. On today's show, We'll address that strangeness and the new normal for college football in the orange and blue through conversations with preseason All-American tight end Kyle Pitts and FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Let's dive right in by talking to one of the Gators expected to have a dominant season in junior tight end Kyle Pitts. After storming on the scene as a sophomore and becoming one of Kyle Trask's favorite targets, the eyes of both fans and NFL GMs will be watching very closely to see how he handles the tremendous hype he's receiving. We caught up with Kyle after practice this week and began by asking about his reaction to the COVID lockdown in March that unexpectedly shut down spring practice. Uh, I would say it was kind of hard at first knowing we kind of, we worked hard all off season and to hear that, you know, some infectious, I would say infectious disease kind of put things on pause for a minute, kind of had us, you know, shaking for a minute, but it was just a time where we knew we got to keep going, and even though there's a little pause, that we still got to train and stay together as a team. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you about. In terms of staying in shape and, and staying sharp, how difficult was that when you didn't have the construct of spring ball to kind of dictate that like it normally would? Uh, I would say, I wouldn't say it was, it, was, it was difficult. I would just say if if you were self-motivated, which I think this whole team is, that everybody came back in shape and was, and was ready to go. What did you do personally? Like, what was your routine? Where, were you at home? Were you in Gainesville? Like, tell us what you were doing during that time. Uh, yeah, I was in Gainesville. I bounced back from Gainesville in Atlanta, and I would train with a couple of trainers. What were the biggest challenges for you in terms of keeping that, that focus, that sharpness like you normally would? I would say the biggest challenge is just to keep faith, knowing that even though they were like, that's the time where they were threatening that there was no season. That, I mean, that there was no season to just keep grinding and know that in the end that something good will come out of it. So just kept my head down and grinding the whole quarantine. Once you got past that point, and as we got closer to the fall and you know, you're hearing about school or leagues canceling play, and obviously you're waiting to hear what the SEC is going to do, when did you finally start to feel like, okay, this is going to happen and I've got, a, I've got an actionable plan now to go play? I felt like that, that part, I, I got the uh, extra boost of, positivity when they started you know they came out with a 10 game schedule and how the testing was going to go but I was feeling that if they didn't you know like the longer they took to come out with that stuff then maybe it's going to cancel but I just prayed on it and just was just leaving it up to God. In terms of when that schedule was released and sort of getting back in the right mindset what stood out to you and your teammates from that because this has never happened before a 10 game SEC schedule how did you sort of digest that when that came your way? I think we all just looked at it as competition every week. It's no no disrespect to the you know one double A team, but they're not the SEC team. So those like just knowing every week we face somebody that's just good as us, if not better, 
to just that bring our A game every week. I can imagine there's a lot of ways that this is the case, but in what ways has this camp been different from any other that you've experienced? I think it was different because of a whole lot of different guidelines that had to be followed and testing, of course. Um, it was it was kind of a, a new adjustment, I'd say, but it was something that we all just you know became accustomed to after a while. In terms of what the, the protocols are and what you guys do on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I've seen how the NFL does it by watching Hard Knocks and seeing the L.A. teams. But what's it been like for you in terms of the safety measures, the testing? Like, what does a typical day look like since you guys have been back up and running? Well, I think, you know, we've been doing a great – like the photo staff have been doing a great job. And I would say, let's say on a Monday, we would come in in the morning before meetings and get tested, get our temperature taken, and then go to meetings. And everybody has their mask on and just, you know, following the rules. How many masks are you working with? You got one, you got a few. Do you change it up depending on, you know, time of day, where you're going? I mean, I probably have over 100 masks by now. I'm wearing almost <laughs> a new one every day. <laughs> is, is it become, it's, it's, a, it's a fashion statement, right? I would just say that it's slowly becoming the way of life. I want to I take things back for you a little bit. We'll come back to talking about uh, Ole Miss and, and game week, but I want to talk about sort of your story from the beginning. So I know you didn't start in Gainesville. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and, and where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in a place called Edmonton. It's about 10 minutes, 20 minutes from Philadelphia. So I just, you know, I'm from the Philadelphia area. Um, I'm in a family of four. Mom, dad, one older sister, I'm the youngest. Uh, she graduated from University of Maryland, Eastern Shore. She ran track. And, yeah, we just been like a sporty family. Been playing sports with my whole family. It's just something that always, I, I wouldn't even say kept us out of trouble. It's just something that we always did to just have fun. It was, not, it was never a, I don't want to go go to practice, so why do I have to do this? It's always, can we go to the park and throw the ball or something like that? You mentioned your sister and her background. Did your parents also have athletic backgrounds? Uh, yeah, my mom ran track and then my dad played basketball. Oh, wow. Okay, so you and, you know, you've got the look of a basketball player. If your dad <laughs> played basketball. Was that your first love? Was it basketball at first? Actually, no, I, I actually, like, very dislike basketball. It's pretty boring to me. Either you got it or you don't. And I feel like I, I don't. Growing up, I was training. I used to think I was good. Then when we got to about freshman year of high school, people almost seven foot. That, yeah, that, 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 was sport, that sport wasn't for me. Was uh, was your dad disappointed that you didn't gravitate toward basketball? No, nah, because he knew I loved football. And he could tell that I didn't like basketball because I just really, I mean, I wouldn't go out there and, you know, give no effort. But it just, you could tell that I would always – give more effort at So what got you into football? How did you discover you loved the game? What, what were those the early years like in the sport? Uh, just playing tag. I always just starting from tag and realizing, learning more about the game each and every year. It just made me grow and just want to do more. Like realizing where I'm at now and that, you know, I want to say the peak is the, um, yeah, the, peak is the NFL and that I have the chance to is, is pretty exciting. So that's something that you know, I like to build towards. Early on, what positions did you gravitate to? I used to actually play running back up until junior high school. Then I played a little quarterback. Then I spent my whole my ninth to tenth grade year summer just working on that, and I started to get offers at it. And then you know that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at now. Yeah, when when recruiting picked up for you, I mean, you were getting interest from 
Georgia, Alabama, Miami, Ohio State, Tennessee. What do you remember about that process? Because, I mean, when you're getting that many big schools coming after you, I imagine that that can be a little overwhelming. I think it only can get overwhelming if you let it. I wasn't really into recruiting. I was into – I like what I like. So when I came down to the school and I seen everything that they offered and everything that I wanted, that was I just fell in love and I, I let whatever happened happen. What was it about Florida that you liked so much? What what made you so uh, so in love with it from the start? I was, I mean, you know, coming from like from the Pennsylvania, we it's cold. I don't like the cold, so that was like <laughs> the number one thing that was always warm, hot. Maybe get two weeks where it's cold, and I just uh, like that. The academics, knowing that this is a top ten school, and then you know, always the sports, but that's that, that'll take care of itself. So. Uh, with the the Philly roots, I mean, Philly's. Philly is a different place. You know, people talk a different way. They could be right. a little more aggressive. Well, what's <laughs> it been like? What's it been like being in Gainesville and kind of the, the change of pace from Philly? Uh, I mean, I kept my, you know, I keep that same, that same Philly mentality of we like. It's not many people who make it out of Philadelphia, so you know, being one of the few is just I got to keep putting on for for my state and all of that. So I try and just keep grind hard every day, make sure you know, make my name known, and you know, live a bit like a good statement. Where in, in the Philly mentality, where does booing Santa Claus fit into the Philly mentality? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know too much about that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you came into the program, I mean, obviously, you're not like one of these guys who was in Florida and knew everybody from being, you know, same schools playing each other. Who kind of served as your your rock when you came in? Who mentored you when you came into the program? Uh, Siante Lewis, he showed me, he showed me the way. He showed me just different forms of everything on and off the field. He was a mentor from when I was recruiting. He would just tell me how to maneuver, how to do certain things off the field and on the field, just like, you know, being a student of the game, little things like details will get you the far away. Your time at Florida is right along this, this arrow going up from when Dan Mullen started here. So I'm curious, what have you seen from your freshman to sophomore year with the program that's kept things moving in that direction from where, where it was when he took over? I would say it's, it's just a steady uprising because Coach Miller has a great uh, – he's a great leader, which, you know, it'll trickle down. So everybody likes to follow a great leader, which I feel like helps us, you know, keep getting better each year. So you made huge strides personally from freshman to sophomore year. Now you're seen as one of the top tight ends in the country. What do you feel like clicked so well for you last year that, that you made that big jump? I would say the off season, I got uh, pretty, I got put on some weight and, you know, being bigger, faster, stronger. Those late nights when, you know, uh, Van, Tyree, Freddie, Josh, we always was in the indoor catching thousands of balls. And I feel like that, all that stuff started to pay off during the year. When you just mentioned a big group of guys who are all right now doing big things in the NFL, um, but obviously, you know, that leaves a void uh, in Gainesville as well. So, how have you and, and the other pass catchers sort of stepped up because of all the talent that you guys lost? Oh, uh, I would say, like, a couple of the older guys, like myself, Jacob Copeland, Trey Grimes, we, you know, make sure that the young guys are – we set an example. So, just, like, we had a bunch of late nights where we was in the, in the indoor catching balls, running routes on the, on the weekends to the field, running routes to the quarterback. So, it's just something that somebody taught us the way, and we, it was only right for us to get wisdom down to somebody else. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to do something new. Now, this is a new thing we're going to do with every single player we talk to, and you get to be the first, okay? okay. This, is our, 
This is our pandemic picks section. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about your time during quarantine, and you get to set the bar for, uh, for everybody else. All right. Favorite new TV show that you discovered during the pandemic? Uh, I'm going I'm I'm to have to go with Brain Games. Brain Games? Brain Games. Where, where is I don't know if I know that one. It's on Nat Geo. So, you know what? I actually, I do remember that, but that show was on like 10 years ago, I want to say. Did they bring it back? No, they did bring it back, and I, I didn't, I, I used to watch it, but I realized, you know, I have a little wiser now that when I used to watch it now. It, it really is kind of intriguing. I didn't really know what I was watching. I like that. It's, you know, I don't think anyone else is going to say that, so you're, you're <laughs> off to a good start here with something original. Yeah. Next question for you, next pandemic pick, favorite new movie that you watched during the pandemic? Django. You'd never seen Django before. Oh no, no, I, I didn't really. I'm not really a movie guy because I tend to fall asleep. So I would <laughs> say, yeah, Django or like NFTs. Okay, I like that. I like both those. Yeah. Um, most ambitious meal that you attempted to cook at home. Ooh, that's a good one. I would say, <laughs> I'd just say burger, burgers, fries. Did that not go well, burgers and fries? It actually did. I was kind of, I was pretty happy with myself. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, so this next question is important. Most awkward moment on a Zoom call, and just please don't say this right now. <laughs> Most awkward on a Zoom call. I wasn't really. I don't really have. I didn't really have any awkward encounters on Zoom. Any family members that like had the camera up in their face, didn't know how to, how it worked. <laughs> oh. Or yeah, when we had one of the parent meetings and all the parents was on there, somebody's dad's face was all lit, like, really close to the camera. <laughs> like, you can back up a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Okay, this is a tough one. If you were forced to quarantine with one teammate for the three to four months of lockdown, who would you choose and why? Dante Lane. How come? That's just that's my best friend. That's who I hang out with 98% of the time outside of – Emery and Jacob and Damian Pierce, all those guys, that's like my close group of friends. We always just sit around and kick it and just play the game and just listen to music and chill. So you could get through, you, you wouldn't drive you crazy, it wouldn't be too, you could do like just one-on-one -on -one for three or four months? Yeah, I'll, I think I'll be all right. <laughs> Pandemic aside, when you have free time, I don't have a lot of it, but what do you enjoy doing off the field? I just like to relax. I listen to jazz. That's what really relaxes me. I listen to like old R&B, old school music. That's about it, really. I just like to relax. I don't really like to be out in public too, too much. Yeah, I work to do in public on the field, so I get it. Um, <laughs> you're coming into this year, we talked a little bit about some of that NFL hype and a lot of that talk. What has it been like carrying those expectations? Because I mean, you can't hide from it, right? You Certainly you're aware you're on the watch list. You know the conversation. What's that like as, as it factors into your preparation? Oh, uh, at first, I would say actually that was one thing that in the beginning it just was kind of overwhelming because coming from where I'm from and not really, you know, I'm just coming to college, you know, trying to get away from home and make a statement, but I didn't know that my success brought me to where I was. So at first it was kind of nerve wracking, but now it's just like you're too, you're too grown for that. You got to embrace it and just keep going, know, know what you can do and, and just keep progressing. Well, in line with that, I know there's, you know, there's a, a good number of players who had the kind of NFL hype that you have, 
and they said, you know what, I'm going to opt out of the season. I'm going to go in and just focus on the draft. Uh, I know you've, you've been asked about this a few times. I'm just curious, why, why was that never a consideration for you? Because uh, I feel like I still had uh, some stuff to prove. Just have fun with it. I don't want really to opt out and then sit in the house all day because then I'll drive myself crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what What is it that you feel you have to prove? What's that What's that carrot that's driving you? Oh, uh, I got. I feel like I need to show people, you know, that I'm a little heavier and I'm like in the run game, like my blocking wise, and being a uh, like, you know just more of a student of the game. Yeah, I read a, an article a little while ago where you had talked about uh, some of the guys in the NFL that have signed some really big contracts mm-hmm. and trying to follow what they're doing as you develop. So who are those guys you look up to, and, and what do you take away from their game? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say still Kittle, Ebron, uh, Kelsey, all those guys kind of have the same, you know, I would say, play tight. You know, they all shifty guys who can run down the field. Darren Waller's another guy that I've been, like, been really catching my eye. I've been watching that we kind of have the same body type and just watching the, and Shannon Sharp, but he doesn't play anymore. But that's really like my idol. I, I feel like that's one person that I feel like we're the same number, same height, same weight. You know, I didn't come as a receiver, but I played receiver and moved, got more to tight end. Kind of similar story, but I feel like that's somebody who I will model my game after. What are your expectations for yourself? Obviously, you know, the team has goals, but personally, when you look at what you're trying to do and where you want to take your game, what areas are you most focused on? Uh, you know, like I said, run blocking and being more efficient, being a, being a three-down tight end, making sure that there's no, there's no doubts left on the field. In terms of this offense, again, just the arrow pointing up, you see the production growing year after year. What, what are you looking for from this offense this year? What can fans expect to see from, uh, you know, first full season with Kyle Trask as your starter as well? Oh, I think, you know, maybe our, our, our fans looking for an offensive line, which I think has grown tremendously. And that's something that, you know, keeps getting better every day. And Kyle's being more of a leader now that he's starting from, from day one. So, you know, it's little things like that and just making sure that we click as a, as a team on game day. As you get ready for, for this week, you obviously have Ole Miss, which has a new coaching staff. They have no spring tape to review. I imagine that there's a lot of unknowns. So how do you prepare for a team that it's so hard to really know much about? Uh, I mean, we, we kind of have a, we have like a base of what, what, what they're going to do. But in the same sense, you know, it was still kind of, they have, I feel like maybe they have more of a, they know what we can do versus us knowing what they're doing because we have a new coordinators and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting Saturday, I think. First game with this limited capacity, what's that going to be like? You guys are so used to playing in full stadiums, having, you know, lots of empty seats, but obviously it's not because people don't want to be there, but it's just this weird time. What are what are your expectations for how that's going to feel? Um, I mean, I don't really hear the crowd, so to say, only doing warm-ups and, like, the like the little run out the tunnel. But after that, I kind of block all that off. I don't really hear that part. You, you know, obviously when you score it's when you hear it, but. Like during the game and stuff, that's not really that's not that doesn't really affect me. I feel like. Well, we hope you hear a lot of good noise when you score on uh, on Saturday and still miss. Kyle, thank you, thank you so much for your time and have a great season. All right, thank you. Through the late spring and summer, the fate of the college football season was largely unknown, but many predicted it would go by the wayside because of the effects of the pandemic. What followed was a tumultuous period that saw each of the Power Five leagues charting their own course, mostly without coordination, leading to confusion for all. 
but the SEC stayed patient and is now preparing to play a most unusual season. So to open up our preview with Scott Carter and Chris Harry, we talked about the SEC's steady leadership and what it took to get to this historic moment. I mean, I think we've all had our doubts, Adam. I certainly uh, was on that roller coaster ride for a while, and Chris would, you know, he would always convince me that it was going to happen. And, you know, <laughs> I, I just think they took probably the most uh, patient approach through all this. And here we are, what, uh, Saturday, SEC opens, the Gators are up at Ole Miss, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, twists and turns to get here. But I do think that the leadership the SEC has had from Sankey, I think the the way the schools have all kind of uh, realized the importance of staying together. And, you know, we, I'm sure in those conversations leading up to the day over the past few months, there's been a lot of differences of, of opinion in those rooms with coaches and ADs and uh, administrators. But yet they've somehow found a way to stay on the same page and here they are, you know, they're, they've avoided some of the hiccups, at least up to now, that, you know, obviously the Big Ten and Pac-12 and other conferences have had and some canceling this season. And and now even this week we've seen drastic turns with what the Notre Dame-Wake Forest game being canceled. Mm-hmm. We saw Baylor-Houston get canceled last week. I think that's going to be something that we're going to see just throughout the season. I'm sure the SEC has taken every step necessary to where they're not in that conversation or where they're having to cancel games, but is it possible? Certainly. But it's, it's, to me, this is, it's, it's very unique. It doesn't quite feel normal at all. Right. It, but it's kind of fascinating just to watch how it's played out, and I think it's going to be fascinating over the next uh, 12 weeks to see how it plays out from here for the SEC and the Gators. I think it was kind of um, premature people back in July, and it's apparently counting yourself among that, Adam, just thinking <laughs> the one going to be football and maybe discounting the fact that, you know, so much, so many days could happen and so many uh, uh, advancements in what we know about the virus and how to combat it. And with that, the, I mean, the medical people deserve a lot of credit for figuring out how to do this. Uh, um, and the SEC obviously look closely on what um, the NBA and what the NFL and Major League Baseball is doing. And obviously a lot of those things didn't come out perfectly. The NBA has obviously been the best out of all those. Uh, baseball had some bumps uh, along the way. But we, we know so much more now than we did three months ago, two months ago, one month ago. Um, so we're going to play football. And uh, to Scott's point about the, what the Big Ten did and what have you, I mean, eight. They shut it down too early. I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I don't think that, and I don't think they changed their mind because a bunch of parents were standing out front screaming for them to play football. I think right. some of the statements they came out and said was because of what we know now medically. And, uh, you know, kudos to those people who are figuring some things out. Uh, they don't have it all figured out yet. Um, and I, and there will be, there will be some hiccups in this, uh, in this Southeastern conference season, these ACC seasons and what have you. So, uh, we haven't got there yet, but people kept asking me, we playing football, Chris? <laughs> I would say we are today. And, you know, we're doing this particular uh, 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 podcast uh, a couple days before the Ole Miss game. Are we playing football Saturday? Today we're playing football Saturday. Well, uh, Saturday at noon or central time, lo- 11 o'clock local time. Yeah, let's hope we'll be doing that. But uh, uh, right now it's, it's all systems go, and it's, and it's, not, just, it's not just football. It's soccer. We had a cross-country uh, 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 meet last week. 
volleyball's in three weeks. So uh, uh, God willing and COVID willing, uh, we'll have more and hopefully get to basketball eventually too, which I'm sure we'll talk about right up. We will. We will. Yes. Um, I do want to know what you just talked about, Chris, with the NBA, though. And I think one interesting note is the difference between some of these bubble leagues yeah. and then what college football is trying to do, which ultimately it comes down to something that I know scares a lot of people, which is personal accountability for the athletes. I mean, for this thing to work the way that it is, they've had to take that on as well. And it's, it's something that, you know, I talked to Kyle Pitts about um, in our, our feature this week, but that's something that's kind of a variable there that's much, much different from what the other leagues have had to deal with. But so far, again, they've showed discipline and it's kept everything on track. That boils down to one thing. Um, and a bunch of the Florida players have come on these Zooms and what have you been. And that question has been put to uh, do you want to play or not? If you want to play, you're going to do the right thing. Now, uh, you know, we're, we can't put them in all in dorms like, like, like prison cells and, and keep them there and, and, and bubble them up like that. You just can't. Not, mm. not, they, they can't be student athletes and do that. But, you know, uh, it's something you tell your kids from when they're little, decisions and consequences. You want to make a bad decision, there's a chance you won't play football on Saturday. And, and, and that goes beyond the scope of, of just of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, so credit to those players for making the right decision. Uh, not all of them have, some of them through no fault of their own have gotten sick. Um, and that's the case also for, for athletes in, in some of the other sports, but guy, you see these astronomical numbers for some of these other, uh, programs. Some say it's kind of a blessing that they, that the virus ran through some of those, uh, rosters like they did earlier in the season, earlier in the summer. Uh, that of course remains to be seen, but it is up to these guys to to make the right call and to be where they're supposed to be, and more importantly, to not be where they're not supposed to be. And they they've been told that they've been told that they're uh, pay the penalty if that's the case. And um, they're young men. You want to give them a chance to to make the right decision. I I, I give them credit so far for doing that. Yeah, you know, I remember doing a story a few weeks ago from the UF's medical staff kind of perspective, and Stacy Higgins, who's the athletic director of sports medicine here. I mean, she said it best, you know, all the great medical steps they've taken, all the information they've learned. Uh, she said all this falls apart if the players aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And yeah, that's true. I mean, there would, there will, there would be no season. We wouldn't be talking about Ole Miss on Saturday. If up to this point, these players hadn't been doing what they were supposed to be doing. And uh, there's been some positives, obviously that was going to happen but they've minimized them and they've managed them well. And, um, you know, like Chris said, you got to give hats off to them and also the medical staff. I, I think we've learned the names of a lot of medical personnel at UF that mm. a lot of people didn't know before this. <laughs> if I may add to that, you're not, it's not just the medical people at UF. You got, you got medical people at Ole Miss too. So yeah. credit, to, mm. credit to the medical people at Ole Miss uh, and the players at Ole Miss making the right decisions too because – as of right now, there will be a football game because of these uh, right decisions being made by these guys. Yeah, it's funny, though, talking about you know medical personnel that, uh, that we didn't know about before. I mean, think about the last time that we talked, very few people knew who Dr. Fauci was, right? I mean, we taught you guys may have known because you guys are a little bit more senior. You've, you've been through more things. But just consider how much has changed since the last time we talked. I mean, when we spoke last, which was almost exactly six months ago, a little more, um, I remember the, the debate we had was about games going forward. Should they even be played if there can't be fans? 
we, we were flummoxed by the idea that they would play sports without fans. And now people are used to that now. I, I don't even remember the, the whole the last time we talked. It's It's been so long. Just think about it. I mean, I imagine it was probably in March because I, I remember sitting with Scott when uh, Scott Strickland addressed the uh, the coaching staff and told him that basically the, the athletic season was ending. Sat in the in the in the end zone of the stadium. He asked us to, uh, everyone to socially distance apart. And it was just this weird thing because all these coaches were wondering, what do we – we got to go back and tell our athletes that there's not season anymore? So you're wondering, again, two months ago – there won't going to be football. So now we have football with uh, uh, limited fans and you see it's some of the, some of the uh, uh, optics of these stadiums with these people like in rows and uh, perfectly uh, organized uh, uh, seating or social distancing and what have you. That's where, that's where we are right now. And you kind of hope, I mean, I guess there was a story I was reading uh, in, in the Washington post today, but now this is the third week of the NFL coming up. Now a few more stadiums are going to let people in. Mm-hmm. So, you hope these restrictions kind of get pulled back a little bit. Um, Florida's what? It's got 20%, 17,000, and Ole Miss is 25%. Yeah, I think I can't remember the exact number, but right in there. 25%, and their stadium is smaller, so it may be a little, a little louder of a crowd. But if those are the kind of intangibles we're talking about, the kind of edges or what have you, then so be it. But uh, when we eventually get to talking about football, it's it's going to have a lot more to do with uh, the personnel, the players on the field, the coaches, and what have you, than how many people are in the stands this weekend. Yesterday I was on Twitter, and George McPherson, who used to cover the Gators, he now is the Marlins beat writer for Miami Herald, and He's in Atlanta up in your neck of the woods, Adam. Mm-hmm. And I guess he had taken a picture from the press box before the game. And at first glance, I looked at it and I saw, wow, I'm surprised there's that many people watching that. <laughs> then I realized, oh, they're all cut out people. But from, where, from his vantage point, it looked like, you know, there were people sitting there. Right. So that's just one, uh, one thing that I, I don't think the last time we had a podcast chat that we ever thought we'd talk about is uh, cardboard cutouts of fans, which the Gators will have their share uh, when they play their first home games. That, that's something that uh, they're doing, obviously. We'll do a deep dive into that next week. That's right, yeah. I think <laughs> Who are they? Where fans. are they? <laughs> yeah. I, think we, I think we should all have one of ourselves there. I, I think yeah. we should have the Gator Tells section of the stadium, maybe. Uh, <laughs> cardboard uh, uh, fingers, too. Yes, yeah, the foam right. fingers. Yes, we need cardboard fingers for number six because this is our sixth season of Gator Tales. Believe it or not, I know not Chris all. can't, but no, it's, it's true. Not. It is wow. true. We started we started this show in the fall of 2015, hmm. and now here we are in 2020. So another thing I, I wanted to talk about before we get into kind of the, the nuts and bolts here, because we talk about how our, our world has changed. And since we last had these discussions, the incredible groundswell around the fight for social justice and curing racial injustice. And the reason I want to talk about it here is because there have been, you know, a lot of Gator athletes who've been really, really vocal about this and they've taken a, a position, they've been strong. And Chris, I know one of them, not surprisingly, is Scotty Lewis. And, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of articles done about, you know, him getting out there with a, an actual literal megaphone to say, this is what we demand and this and we're not going to be satisfied until we get it. And it's been an exciting thing to see college athletes have this sort of ownership and feel like, you know, emboldened to get out and speak their mind. Because a lot of times it seems like college athletes are more reserved when it comes to that. 
Well, uh, last week, Scott Strickland put out a video um, via social media that obviously got the attention of the student athletes saying that our student athletes are going to have a, a voice this year. And that's something that's that's tamped down in the past. I mean, they're, you know, the messages on cleats and wristbands and helmets or what have you, it, it, you just haven't been able to do it. Tim Tebow in 2009 couldn't, you know, was had denied his John 316 eye patches or what have you. So mm -hmm. it's a lot different. I mean, uh, soccer this weekend, they're going to uh, engage in something that's kind of a global soccer thing where they're, they, it's, they give racists a red card. Um, they will be kneeling at national anthems. Uh, in the case of Scotty Lewis, they'll be kneeling and fists near national anthems. Um, this is stuff where it's been discouraged in the past, you know, because uh, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to get uh, fans upset. You don't want to uh, alienate boosters, perhaps. Uh, I've told the story several times. I told Scotty Lewis the other day when I talked about him, when I wrote the story about his uh, organized protest, which he had in his near his hometown in New Jersey in, in May, not long after the, uh, the killing of George Floyd. And I wrote the story and you know, I, lost, I lost 500 followers in, a, in two days. Wow. Because people didn't want to read politics and sports. Not that there was any sports going on. He goes, that's interesting. I lost 10,000 followers right afterwards. <laughs> so uh, uh. so, so uh, 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 that's the blowback. And we go back to what we talked about, consequences. Uh, I have a story about this on FloridaGators.com this week and talking to S Scott Strickland. You know, are you ready for this? He says, it doesn't matter if I'm ready for it or not. It's coming. So, uh, and we are encouraging our athletes to engage in this, to have a voice but importantly, to know what your voice is and have an answer for it. They call it knowing your why. If someone asks you, why are you doing this? They need to have an answer for it and it needs to be a cogent answer, not some rambling one. And all the coaches have had these uh, uh, very intimate discussions with their teams because uh, um, what's, what's, what's the saying with... Um, with great power comes great responsibility. Responsibility, correct. So uh, if you're given the power to express yourself, uh, be responsible enough to have an answer when someone comes up and, and asks you um, your reasoning behind that. And I think on that front, uh, the student athletes of Florida will, will be ready for that. I like the change in philosophy, not only at UF, but also across the country. Uh, these are college campuses and it's about education. And uh, for some of these young people here, uh, I mean, I think it's an education for us all, quite frankly. Uh, and when you reach a certain age, you almost look at these kind of deals as racism. I've always just lived, you live, treat people equal, but then you realize how many different opinions are out there when, like you said, you know, Scotty Lewis has lost 10,000 followers. Mm -hmm. uh, I've lost some followers every time I've rebroadcast something that we've done along those lines. And you're like, wow, I mean – I see a lot of political commentary on my timeline every day. Some of it I agree with, some of it I don't maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> I guess I've never really taken it so serious for, I'm not going to you know, follow that guy anymore. I don't want to. Or unfollow. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or unfollow. So it's just, you realize that how different we all are and how, boy, there's a lot of different mindsets out there when it comes to an issue such as racism or social justice and, uh, Again, I like the fact that it's being talked about. I like the fact that the athletes get to express some of their thinking. And most importantly, like you guys have just talked about, you have to do it responsibly or whatever your message is is going to get lost. And if you do it the wrong way, you're, you're actually going to hurt your cause more than help it. So considering that, like you said, again, we're, in, we're on a college campus, I think it's a healthy 
uh, environment right now. And hopefully uh, it makes us all better down the road. And I'm not talking about in a year or so. I'm talking about way down the road. I mean, that's what all this is for. No, there's no question. And again, I think you really have to salute some of the gay athletes that have really been at the at the forefront of it and having these conversations. These are not easy conversations for anybody to have, but it doesn't mean they're not important, which is why it's it's good that they are happening and that there is there's a construct. They've built it, you know, they've built an infrastructure for athletes to share their feelings on this and be able to speak freely. And to uh, if people paying attention to this, if they want to see exactly an ex, uh, some examples of, exa- of exactly what you're talking about, go back on our website and, or Google the Listen, Learn, and Act series, mm. uh, which is some really candid and frank remarks from some athletes. Start started with a, a discussion of race among the men's basketball team. Then there was one with the, uh, all the head coaches. Most of the head coaches took part in it. And then the last one was a good one, too, in which uh, it was um, – athletes of color in, in mostly white sports hmm. and just to hear some of their takes on things and, uh, and listen to, listen to them being vulnerable um, and, and, and detailing some of these things that they've gone through is a, uh, is really, really a, a, a enlightening kind of thing. And something that Linda Teeler, who was obviously the second in command behind Scott Strickland, something that she was at the forefront of and something that she says uh, gave her as much pride that um, Florida sports has done than anything she's been, she's done here in, in 18 years. So, uh, and she said like, normally we talk about the brand. This was something different. This was, this was talking about real life issues and in a very, in a very candid and sincere way. And, and I've, I've no doubt we'll continue to see, uh, you know, sparks throughout the year where this becomes another inflection point. And, uh, you know, and I'll, we'll tell, talk I'll about tell you right it. now, uh, the, You'll probably see something before the Florida uh, Ole Miss football game too. Yeah, no question, no question. Um, I do want to talk about about that game and bigger picture this season for the Gators because if we look at this just from a football perspective, which is ironic since so much this year has not been about the football part of it at all and just sort of getting to that starting line. Um, this sets up as a really good year for Florida. That was the case before anything even happened, just looking at what was coming back, looking at scheduling, et cetera. And then you started to see, okay, well, you have uh, you know, Georgia's quarterback decides not to play. LSU's top receiver decides not to play. There have been a lot of kind of micro changes on this path that have made what is already a good-looking road for Florida seem even better. So I guess we're, we're in this weird spot where, and, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself because I still, it's hard to kind of wrap my head around the fact that it's college football season because the world feels so weird and it just doesn't, it doesn't, you know, resonate like it normally would. But despite all of that, this is a Florida team that has a chance to compete for a national title as, as most experts believe. What you just said, I mean, I'm kind of there with you, even though here we are three days away. Uh, I'm still trying to get in that football mode, but we're getting there. And the fact that we've even gotten this far, it is amazing on a lot of levels. And for the Gators, when you talk about the pieces lining up, I mean, whenever a team does win a title, you, in retrospect, there's always some pieces that fall into place that sometimes they happen in the off season. So obviously they're going to happen in the in the season, and sometimes at the end of the season, certain games have to go a certain way. I can remember the first ever Gators championship that last uh, weekend of the season. My gosh, some things fell in their place that way. But you're right. There's some talk around this team. It's a Florida team that's getting more publicity, I think, in the off season than any season going back to 2009. 
Uh, they're ranked, what, number five in the current AP Top 25. That's the highest ranking the program's had since 2012. So, uh, and, you know, whenever you have a quarterback coming back, a veteran quarterback, that is always the one spot that uh, a team is going to get a boost from. And Kyle Trask, after what he did last year, uh, to have him back in, as a fifth-year senior, really turned the offense around last year when he took over. Florida became more of a pass-oriented offense uh, like Gator fans love. Dan Mullen wants to, I think, see a little bit of that balance to the run game come back. I think, you know, they have the potential for that. But it's a it's a really good mix of veteran guys who have been here these past two years uh, since Dan Mullen took over and won 21 of 26 games. And also some newcomers uh, like Javon Dexter on the defensive line who you're going to see them play right away. Uh, Trayvon Johnson, a true freshman, he's already on the depth chart at uh, the star position. So you're going to see him Saturday at Ole Miss. So it's just a, a nice mix of, of talent, uh, a coaching staff that has great continuity. Only one staff change this year. The new tight ends coach, assistant head coach Tim Brewster, comes in after Larry Scott takes the head coaching job up at Howard. So, you know, there's a, but when you, when you start to add everything up, when you look at teams, the programs that usually win it, a lot of the things that we're talking about here, they've also had. So uh, they still got to go out and do it on the field. And this is going to be – if they – you just think about it. Let's say – the SEC has no interruptions, no cancellations. Guess what that still means? You have to win 10 or probably nine SEC games. And then you have to go to the SEC championship game. And then, of course, to get to the college football playoff, which is Florida has never been in, this is their best chance to do that since the inception of the CFB playoff. So uh, it's fun to be talking about things like this. It's going to be more fun, I think, obviously, for the Gators and their fans if we're still talking about this stuff in what December? Yeah, you know so. what's what's crazy, Scott. Like the way you just laid it out is sometimes I'll think about think back on a championship season, and for when we did the the Gator Great series, for example, the path of the 08 team, the 06 team, and it's so much harder now to win a championship because of the college football playoff, and also because the SEC across the board has gotten so much stronger. I mean, remember, Florida won their last two national championships when Alabama wasn't Alabama yet. I mean, it's really, really hard to win a college football playoff. It's hard to even be in position to win the college football playoff, which is what makes you really cherish being able to do it because it's, you know, one mistake. Sometimes it's one mistake in one game and, and there's your chance. I mean, it's just... It's crazy when you think about all the things that have to go right, especially under these circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it's like your latest podcast series on the 08 Gators. Uh, you know, they lost to Ole Miss. And obviously, that was the famous Tim Tebow speech afterward, and, and things fell into place. But the Tim Tebow in a speech like that, the, those things become iconic because they don't happen very often. Right. Uh, most of the time, you got to have, obviously, the talent. You got to have some luck. Uh, and you're right, in today's SEC, in today's landscape of college football, it is more difficult than ever because if you do get out of that SEC 10-game schedule, and you do get out of the SEC championship game, you still very well could face another, still that same SEC program or another yeah. win the football playoff. And whoever else is there, you know, they're going to have great seasons too. But uh, for the Florida program, as I said earlier, this is the first time we've been talking about this program like this in this way in the preseason, really since 
2009, and it was fool's gold in 2010 after uh, in Urban Meyer's final year. I think they opened the season actually that year, ranked fourth. Obviously, they went on to eight and five, and it, it was not a great season by Florida standards. And and they've been kind of fighting uphill uh, for the decades since. And Dan Mullins come in and rejuvenated everything, and that's why we're having this conversation now. Quick plug, by the way, for the Gator Great Series, if you're just rejoining us after being away for the summer, uh, we welcome you back and also encourage you to go and listen to our Trail to Glendale series, The Promise Fulfilled, uh, MBK Goes B to B, that, of course, about the 06-07 basketball championship teams. We talked to almost all the principals from all of these championship runs and chronicled those stories. Uh, so make sure to go back in the feed and check those out. We know that you will enjoy them. Um, but anyway, back to, back to this. Uh, I'm going to give you a little plug, Adam. I think that's your best work. That was, a, that was those were good series. Thank you. Your Thank interviews you. with them were a lot, you know, they were probably a little more interesting sometimes than me and Chris, but <laughs> not Chris, just me. You know? I don't want to hurt Chris's self-esteem, especially when he's about to give us the lowdown on this season of Gator football. So please, Chris, no more plugs. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you run unfiltered here. In terms of measuring this Gator team and their potential, I think it's also, it really says something to have, I mean, we've talked about since the inception of this podcast, every single year we've had the, who is the quarterback going to be? What's the battle? I mean, for Florida to have the first team all-conference quarterback in Kyle Trask preseason, Kyle Pitts is a preseason All-American. I mean, it has been literally over a decade since we had Florida offensive skill position players listed among the best in the league. I mean, that that really, I think, speaks volumes about where the program is now relative to where Dan Mullen took over. I think it also speaks, Adam, excuse me, Adam, to the where some of the other programs are. That's not at all a shot at Kyle Trask, what he did last year, uh, given the circumstances, stepping in two scores down at Kentucky on the road, hostile environment, and, and leading that come back and then what he did for the balance of the year, the numbers he put up. But, uh, you know, we talked, we've been talking since the beginning about these strange circumstances. Well, he's the incumbent uh, best quarterback in this league uh, in terms of what he's already accomplished and um, the numbers he's put up. And in these circumstances that were unusual, it's it probably makes a coach uh, feel a lot better to have a guy who's, who's, who's been through it in his system versus maybe what's going on at Georgia and Alabama and LSU. Those are all teams pick, probably picked to, to do better than the Gators, and yet they're breaking in new quarterbacks. So Gators are at a, a, a significant advantage there. They Obviously, they got to take advantage of that. But Kyle Trask has earned not just that praise, but that trust from, from his coaching staff. And uh, I, I'm anticipating him. I mean, you listen to his, his, his teammates love him. Uh, he's very popular in the locker room. I think some things have to get better around him. I can only imagine uh, how much better he can be if the Gators get an element of the running game. Now, this time last year with uh, some unproven offensive linemen, they really struggled to run the ball uh, well into the season. LaMichael Pirine uh, got beat up pretty good sometimes. Uh, he had a couple of nice games, certainly the last one against Virginia. He had that long run against Auburn. But you really have to struggle to think of a game where LaMichael Pirine uh, dominated. And obviously he's in the NFL now and, and, and what have you. So they had, a, they had a bullet back there. Now they got Malik Davis, a senior who's going to be healthy. They got Damian Pierce, who we know uh, is a home run threat. They'll work some other guys in back there. If that offensive line's playing better and Kyle Trask can, uh, can work those RPOs off significant run threats and respected run threats from the defense, he's going to be an even better quarterback than he was last year. 
Um, I, I want to talk some defense, too, because obviously, you know, preseason, everyone's talking about the offense, but the Gators did lose some pretty significant pieces on that side of the ball as well. Obviously, C.J. Henderson is gone, Jabari Zuniga, John Grenard, who came in, and you know, it's crazy sometimes when you have those one-year players and you think about them, and you almost you forget that they were only there for such a short period of time because of the impact that they had. But certainly Florida, uh, they've lost a good bit in terms of the pass rush, which is, you know, it's a huge part of Todd Grantham's defense. Think about the start of the year against Miami with what, like nine, ten sacks that game. When Florida is at their best defensively, it's through an elite pass rush. What are your expectations for that going into the year? Well, I mean, there's some question marks there. Like you just said, anytime you lose John Grenard, who we've said it here once before I've said it that I think he's probably the best one year transfer into the program the Gators have had certainly on defense and then of course Jabari Zaniga was really supposed to kind of put that production up last year that we saw from John Grenard he was injury plagued all year still made a, a difference in a couple of the games he was able to to play in but anytime you lose those kind of guys off the edge they're looking toward some unknowns. I mean, Brenton Cox Jr., the uh, transfer from Georgia who set out last year, he came into the program during fall camp last season. They had hoped to get him eligible. It never happened. So he's uh, looked good uh, by all accounts uh, throughout camp. He's atop the depth chart at the end position. And then on the, the buck position, uh, which has kind of become known as Florida's edge rush position, you got Jeremiah Moon, uh, who – you look at him, he passes the eye test at him. Everybody's always said that about Jeremiah. He's had trouble staying healthy. Uh, 6'5", 250, they haven't listed that going into his uh, season. I mean, he's got tremendous potential if he can, uh, if he can cash in on some of those uh, physical traits. So those, those are the two guys that are right now labeled as the guys to pick up that production. Muhammad Diabate, who was a true freshman last year, he got on the field some. He's another guy who gives them versatility uh, on the edge. And if we know anything about Ty Grantham's defense in his first two years at Florida, we know he loves to be aggressive. We know he loves to gamble. And we know that he gets a lot of people on the field. And guess what? They have never cross-trained as many people as they have this fall. Because in speaking toward what we've been talking about a lot of the early in this podcast, I mean, every week is going to be – we're going to have all of our guys. Right. Say, who are we missing? And there's, there's going to be some guys, you know, who are probably going to get some odd looks at positions maybe we didn't expect to see under normal circumstances. But in 2020, I think that's just going to be uh, kind of the norm. And, and we'll, we'll probably be talking about a guy here and there They'll surprise us at a position we didn't expect. But in terms of what they have entering the season, entering the Ole Miss game, Cox, Diabate, and um, Moon, those are three guys who they really need some kind of production from on the edge. Yeah, the defense was top 10 nationally, and I'm looking at top three in the SEC in six different categories. We're talking total defense, scoring defense, rushing defense, interceptions, opponents' red zone percentage, and sacks per game. So – um, it was that was a really good defense last year. You know who's who's going to be that uh, that <clears throat> that John Grenard, um, a, a player that Scott didn't mention, or a couple players Scott did. Zach Carter is a guy who I'm anticipating uh, to kind of have a breakout season in the interior defensive line, and a guy I tell you what, this was early on uh, when he first got here is Ventrell Miller. They're at that linebacker spot. 
Uh, I was I was struck with how disruptive he could be when he was here as a true freshman. Uh, didn't get to play that season, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but uh, uh, he's he's a player with David Reese gone. David Reese is a guy everybody could rely on. Who's your dependable guy filling filling the holes from that uh, linebacker position against the run? That was David Reese the last few years. It's going to be Ventrell Miller this year. And really, we didn't. I'm not sure how much we talked about uh, the whole DBU element. It's funny, I talked to Marco Wilson earlier in the week. He had the most humble explanation about DBU that I've heard from Florida defensive back, from a Florida defensive back since this whole DBU uh, phenom started or phenomena started going. When, when did this thing start? Is it like, a, is it more than That's 10 years ago? That's a good question. But we're, talk, we're talking, we're going back to Jalen Tabor and yeah. Quincy yeah, Wilson uh, way before that, though, right? But it was more like you're the Elam. Josh Evans, that group. Is late aughts a fair way? Is it pretty much sync with the yeah, end yeah, of Urban? I think more of the, of the Muschamp crew, you know, than, than, than I do back in Reggie Nelson time. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. So Mark, Mark, Marco Wilson said, you know what people ask me about DBU? He goes, he goes, there's great defensive backs all over. LSU has great defensive backs. Ohio State has great defensive backs. And we have great defensive backs. And you look at this crew coming back. When you're talking about there's there's Marco Wilson who's a guy who started every game last year. You got Kier Elam who made the play of the game in the Orange Bowl, kind of helped seal that win in what was a one possession game late. Uh, uh, Sean Davis and Donovan Stein are back there. Trey Dean. I tell you what, uh, um, uh, Todd Grantham was given high marks, and I think Scott can sign off on this on the improvement C.J. McWilliams has made at that star position who during his career has had some fingers pointed at him for whatever reason. But uh, Todd Grantham has, uh, has given him some, some, uh, uh, some very impressive praise in terms of how he's bounced back and, and is ready to play this season. So there'll be guys that we haven't talked about, some freshmen that'll, that'll step up. But uh, that's a nice core uh, in that secondary from which to work with. Now if they get some – they can get some pressure on the quarterback, and you know they're going to try because that's what Todd Grantham does. They should feel pretty confident in what's going on uh, uh, in the secondary. One last note on the defense, guys. When that depth chart did come out earlier this week, a lot of uh, talk about Kyrie Campbell and Brad Stewart not being on it. Dan Mullen actually said on his teleconference today that both guys will be available to Ole Miss. So I think that surprised some folks. So uh, that means if they're going to be available, they got some work to do to get in the rotation. In terms of Ole Miss specifically, uh, you know, I, I talked to, to Kyle Pitts about this. It's sort of a, a weird situation to be in because if you consider that, number one, it's a new coach. Number two, there was no spring ball. So that leads us to number three, which is a lot of question marks about what they're going to look like. And I'm, I'm not sure how much you can take what Lane Kiffin was doing at FAU and say that's what Ole Miss is going to look like. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm curious for, for you guys what your expectations are for what will happen in this game other than probably Lane Kiffin saying something incendiary because that's all most people know about him at this stage of his career. Well, you have to do that because that's, that's all you have. Um, and this is, that's unusual circumstance um, because usually you have a warm up game to prepare before you play a Southeastern conference opponent, obviously. So you go right. back, not just to look at his blueprints and his tape from, from FAU, but also what he, what he was doing as offensive coordinator at Alabama even what he was doing at USC and Tennessee, but also what the offensive coordinator 
uh, I believe it's Jeff Lebby, I think is how you say his name. And he was at UCF and he was at Baylor. So uh, he's put, he's got some yards on the back of his football, on the back of his football card too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's, it's, it, there is an element of mystery what exactly Ole Miss is going to do. You've got to marry what they, what he's done at his previous stops to the potential personnel they have. And, um, I think obviously it starts at the quarterback position and you got John Rice Plumlee who said, said an old man, he had rushed for 1300 yards and 12 touchdowns from the quarterback position last year. That was a freshman record at Ole Miss. And Mullen said the guy would have been the fastest team, fastest player on the Gator team last year. And that includes CJ Henderson. So, uh, he's electrifying. He's going to take off and run. And now you got to balance him also with how they're going to work in maybe the packages, depending on who starts. We don't know who's going to start yet. Uh, Matt Corral, the California uh, four-star quarterback from a couple years ago, he's a sophomore who initially committed to play at Florida, but is now right. a little mess. So uh, it's all about projection, what they're going to do there, but that's all they have. That's the blueprint they have to have. And I don't think it's going to deter uh, Todd Grantham very much from what he likes to do. And that's put pressure on the quarterback, and I don't think it's going to matter uh, which quarterback's back there either. No, I I see what Chris saying there is being kind of the way it plays out in a lot of ways. Uh, Ole Miss, it's it's really about the quarterback uh, in their first uh, season under Lane Kiffin. You know he's going to disguise some things. You know he's going to have some trick plays. Uh, I'm sure the Gators are you know preparing for that. He's a great offensive mind. There's no doubt. He, it's I think whether or not. When you think of Willie Kiffin, I think of two things. I think of uh, of being a quote machine, and I think of he's a great offensive mind. Um, So it's going to be a challenge for the Gators defensively. Blumley, obviously, if he gets outside and gets on the edge, I mean, he's he's hard to catch. Uh, And then Corral comes in, and he's more of your uh, typical drop-back passer, so you got some uh, different looks there. Um, And, of course, I I just really, guys, when I think about – this game, and I mean, we've seen it play out in some ways on TV, obviously, because we're hearing the fans, we're hearing that noise. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what it's like in person and what that's going to be like for the players. I mean, it, I know it's it's kind of something that everybody's dealing with, but I, that's really one of the more – I can't wait just to ask some of the players about what that was really like, you know, because I'm mm-hmm. sure they're wondering what it's going to be like too. Yeah, it's something I talked to Kyle Pitts about, and you know, I sort of said – how are you expecting this to feel relative to a normal game? And he said, well, usually I, I hear the crowd in pregame and, you know, we're doing our warm-ups, but then once the game gets going, really only when you score do you feel it. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure if everybody is as insular as Kyle Pitts is in that sense, but you do wonder what so, – so much of college football is driven by the crowd and by that energy and the way it creates waves of momentum. If you don't have that – how does the trajectory of the game, the flow of the game change? I think it's a legitimate question we don't know the answer to yet. Yeah, and, you know, this is the SEC, so there will be fans there, unlike what we've seen some of the NFL. I was watching that Raiders game the other night, too, and I watched the Chargers game the other day, little pieces of that, and I'm thinking these two new unbelievable stadiums, and they're sitting there empty. So we'll see some people in Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. Uh, but, yeah, that's as much as I'm curious to see that than I am as – uh, a lot of things. How about the Eagles piping in like booing for their own? Only in Philly, baby. That's, that's tremendous. You have to make it feel like a home field advantage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
We don't normally talk about the NBA on this podcast, but we do want to briefly talk about uh, the news that came out this week with Billy Donovan, who mutually agreed to leave Oklahoma City, which I think, Chris, was a surprise to a lot of people, especially after winning Coach of the Year. But when you win Coach of the Year, there's usually other options for you out there, and he has now landed with the Chicago Bulls, one of, I think, arguably the you know the preeminent franchises in, in the NBA, historically at least. Yeah, and one of the quite frankly, one of the most depleted rosters in the NBA relative to talent. So this is going to be a different kind of thing for, for Billy. But having said that, uh, you know, there were about a half dozen, five or six openings, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm sure that the, the people making the hires, you know, had Billy Donovan at the top of their list. Um, and he could have jumped at a place like Philadelphia, which is loaded with talent. Uh, uh, he could have gone to Indiana, which was a which is a team which is which which made the postseason. I don't know if you wanted, wanted to go back and deal with Westbrook in Houston or not, but of all the of all the ones that he picked, uh, he had to have had a particularly good connection with the people. <clears throat> excuse me, making the basketball decisions at Chicago. And for the life of me, I'm not even going to try to mention the Chicago Bulls' uh, new president's name. He's from Lithuania. He was a European basketball star. This is his first year. I think his, first, I think his name is Arturis. Uh, uh, <laughs> the reason Billy went to Oklahoma City was because of a connection with Sam Presti. He didn't, he didn't stick around there for whatever reason, probably because he didn't want to see a, re, a, a rebuild under, under the circumstances that he was told that they were going to uh, rebuild. Um, now, Oklahoma City – they have 10 first round draft picks in the next five years because of the trades for trading Paul George and trading Russell Westbrook. Um, they had more assets from which to build, but he decided to move on for, for, you know, for whatever reason. Now he's in Chicago. They have the fourth pick have the lottery pick, their best player, Zach Levine from, uh, from UCLA a couple of years ago. He was actually on the UCLA team that Billy beat on the way to final four in That's uh, right. 2014. Beyond that, I mean, it's a, it, it's a mess, I think. And so how's Billy Donovan going to handle, uh, you know, a 20-win season? He's never been a, a one to shy away from challenges, obviously. I think that he loved dealing with the mental gymnastics of players every day and having that control uh, in college. Then to go to the NBA, I think he loved the idea of having to remake himself into, a, into a, 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 almost a sheer X and O guy, but also a different kind of um, strategist and different kind of psychologist when it came – to dealing with uh, these uh, humongous contract guys and these humongous egos. And obviously, what he did this year in Oklahoma City was masterful. Uh, one of our last podcasts, or one of the few last podcasts we have, I think probably came after my trip out there to see him in, uh, yeah. in, in Oklahoma City. Feels and like a lifetime ago, doesn't it, when you did that? It feels like a lifetime ago, Adam. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was clear how much he loved the NBA. Um, at the time, he was without a contract, so it wasn't – we weren't sure what was going to happen, but what he did in giving um, entitlement and, and empowerment to Chris Paul on that team spoke a lot to how his handling of veterans and what he could do. And certainly uh, Chris Paul appreciated that. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you, if Chris Paul <clears throat> didn't end in Chicago. But uh, I don't think Billy's going to stand pat with that roster and just say, hey, let's see what happens with them. We'll build with it. I think they'll probably try to see what they can do to get some guys in there and, you know, maybe Chris Paul is making $37 million, I think for the next three years. And he's 36 years old. I wouldn't be surprised. This is coming off the top of my head. Chris Paul ends up in Chicago and they give a couple of those two draft picks just to get that salary off the books. And maybe that's how the rebuild begins in Chicago. Who knows? 
So as we transition to our first PAT of this season, uh, I want to incorporate, we're going to space these out the next few weeks, but something I'm doing with our players is pandemic picks. And we're going to translate that and get your guys' opinions too. Uh, We're just going to do one question, nice and simple for you. What is the best TV show that you discovered during the pandemic, during quarantine specifically? Something that you maybe thought about, oh, I should get into this. Then you did it and you were glad that you did. I've watched several, but... I mean, we've we've watched a ton. That's a hard thing to answer because that's pretty much all there's been to do. Um, Do you know what? I'll make it easy for you guys. I'll start, okay? I will give you two shows that we did simultaneously at the beginning of quarantine. We binged Schitt's Creek and Succession. So you can imagine how validated we felt when those two shows won almost all of the Emmys for Best Comedy and Best Drama. Um... I would recommend both of those to anybody. We've also done Ozark. Maybe not for everyone, but I would say Succession and uh, Schitt's Creek are both just really well-written, well-executed shows that uh, that lifted our spirits during during difficult times. Well, you know, you, you kind of led me into Ozark. Well, I, well, I'd watched Ozark prior to the pandemic, but I, I never stuck with it. I finally did stick with it early in the pandemic because I think the what the third season got released early in the pandemic, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and right, right around the time of Tiger King. <laughs> oh, Tiger King! Oh gosh, yeah, that was one that I watched. But you know what? I've watched a lot, but the one that I really enjoyed maybe the most was the documentary on Jordan. Oh yeah, Last Dance was the Last Dance. I mean, obviously it's sports, and I like I like to spend my free time a lot away from sports. But also love a documentary that I think is well done. And I thought it just opened some insight into Michael Jordan, who, let's face it, if you're of a certain age, you think you pretty much know everything about his career there is to know. But you still learn some some of the things behind the, the things we knew about, why he was that way or his thoughts, you know, years later on the gambling trip or whatever. I mean, there was just a lot of interesting insight there that I, I'd never knew, and uh, I enjoyed that. What about yeah, you, Chris? I, I, you know, that was a that was an answer that would count. I, I can't say I binge watched that because I watched it every time it was live coming on. Because as you know, they rushed it to through production right. and put it on just so we'd have some damn sports to watch. <laughs> I was as close to sports as it was. Um, yeah. I actually, my wife and I, we'd never seen Breaking Bad before. So oh, wow, we watched Breaking Bad during the pandemic early on. No redeeming characters. No. <laughs> no. Redeeming characters. <laughs> Which and that's see that's the thing about Ozark and Succession actually yeah, and my and my wife has binged Ozark. I did not watch Ozark with her, but she said the same thing. No, you know, no redeeming characters. I watched one that was okay. That I, I, I you had to get through the first episode, or um, or you, you probably weren't that interested in it if you gave up on. But I, I did watch the HBO new the Perry Mason the prequels, and it was okay. I heard slow. Slow was the word I heard did you, about did that. You, did you watch the whole thing? No, I didn't watch any of it. I yeah, heard it was it, super slow, and I decided to punt. Definitely slow. Definitely slow. It's, it's enough to kind of draw you into it a little bit um, little bit early on, uh, but uh, they got to develop some characters a little bit, and I, I did kind of enjoy that. And I will they, – they renewed it for a second season, so I will watch it for that. But uh, but Breaking Bad consumed a lot of our time. How many episodes? Is that 70-some episodes, I guess? Yeah, it you, I, think it was, I think it was like – 50 to 60 because they did short seasons yeah 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 but uh certainly kept our attention and certainly just uh a lot of bad a lot of bad decisions made in that movie yeah or or, or in that tv show you know i forgot one that chris suggested to me early on 
the Mary Tyler Moore show. I'd never <laughs> seen it. I, Chris, you know, he said he had to I didn't even know you could binge that. <laughs> it's on Hulu, man. Is it really? Is yeah. it really? Yeah, wow. I'll, I'll watch it once in a while for real. It's actually pretty funny still. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great. I, I think we just scored some major points with uh, with Gen Z on the, the Mary Tyler Moore drop there. So I'm, I'm glad that we, we checked that box. I think it debuted uh, last week, 50 years ago last week. Wow. I saw, right. I saw, I saw a tweet about that. Huh. This is something you learn something new every day. I had no idea about that until this moment. Um, well, before we do wrap here, I want to give people the opportunity to hear some new things you guys have going on. So tell us what's on the site uh, for this week and maybe a few stories recently that, that fans may have missed. Well, Adam, for me, you know, I'm trying to get back into football mode. So it's the much anticipated 2020 debut of the opening kickoff. The opening kickoff is Chris, back. Chris usually... Is like I, I always look at our analytics, and Chris is always one of the first people to click <laughs> on that. It's amazing. He's he's all over it, and uh, you know we'll have some other stuff. But I'm going to let Chris. I think Chris is going to carry the serious stuff this week on FloridaGators.com. <clears throat> the comprehensive preview, <laughs> known as the opening kickoff. It's <laughs> sweet. The sweet music that tells us football is here. Now, you know, seriousness. I mean, yeah, it's that time of year, so. I'm glad to be able to focus on football, quite frankly, because I think over the summer, early on, I became our COVID rider, and Chris kind of took on the social justice beat. And, you know, while we have a lot of experience writing about a lot of different topics over our careers, it is actually nice to be able to write about a football game this week. Yeah, and we and I think I referenced earlier uh, a story about um, at least the video that Scott Strickland did last week about allowing athletes to have – their voice and uh, there'll be a companion piece up on floridagators.com uh, kind of amplifying that, what the rationale is behind that and having talked to some student athletes and some administrators uh, about that very issue. And like I said, there, there'll be some things uh, if you recall at the, at the NFL game last week, you know, like I said, some, some people took it the wrong way or didn't like what they saw. Uh, they don't want their politics with their, uh, with their sports, but guess what? They're getting it. And uh, that's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to be, not just in the south, not just at Florida, but probably uh, in the southeastern conference this season. And there was a story on FloridaGators.com about that. Yeah, no question. Well, go to FloridaGators.com to see all of that content. Follow these guys on Twitter at Gators Scott at Gators Chris, and uh, Scott will be on the ground in Oxford. Not a lot of people are going to be there to cover it live. Scott will be there, so make sure to follow him as well. And uh, guys, it was fun. I it's. It was good to catch up with you guys here. I know this is the longest podcast we've ever done together, but it's good to see you, and uh, hopefully we can continue uninterrupted and uh, things stay uh, on the, the uptick this football season. Well, Adam, it was good seeing you, and I'm, I'm waiting for Chris to see what he says. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The Gators and Rebels open the 2020 season Saturday in Oxford, and you can follow the action live at noon Eastern on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales. Gator Tales.